2: It's Monday, December 18th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. And
3: I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
2: You can find us online at inquiring.show or on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds.
3: Are you a fan of the show Dexter?
2: You know, I watched a few episodes and it was okay.
3: I mean, this is a different kind of show. It followed the life of a crime scene investigator, coroner type that also led a double life as a serial killer at night. So putting aside the serial killer part... Our next guest actually considered Dexter one of his favorite portrayals of life as an investigator of that sort. You may think that's a little weird, especially since our next guest spent 40 years working as an investigator, eventually rising to uh, to the position of a coroner.
2: Wait, so isn't a coroner just somebody who uh, takes care of dead bodies? Like, how do you, what do you mean rose to the position of coroner.
3: This is where it gets interesting. We delve into this question a lot. A coroner is an interesting position that varies a lot city to city. I thought there was, if you're a coroner for a town, that meant you had all of this really specific training. And it turns out not to be that case. coroner has to be a medical examiner of some kind. They have to have police uh, training Of some kind. They have to know how to navigate a bureaucracy. They oftentimes have to notify the next of kin. So they have to have training in how to deal with victims. There is a ratio of two to one suicides over murders in this country. So they also have to have a lot of training in dealing with suicides as well. All of these go get mashed up into one person. And in many cases, the coroner is an elected position, not one that is chosen by law enforcement itself.
2: So a medical examiner is not just a pathologist, and a coroner is not just a medical examiner. Exactly. I'm learning already.
3: Yeah, and depending on the size of the community you're in, all of those different roles that maybe a big city like New York City has as separate roles gets matched into one person.
2: Well, I might not have loved Dexter, but I certainly am a huge fan of Law & Order.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, our guest wasn't always a fan of every Hollywood portrayal, but this week we have on Ken Holmes. He spent 40 years working in this area in Marin County, eventually rising to be coroner for Marin County. His life's work is detailed in a new book, The Education of a Coroner, which is co-written with author John Bateson. We spent time talking about the training and the expectations of being a coroner spoiler, it's really inconsistent. Uh, But we also revisited a few cases that linger with him after all of these years and talking about uh, the the different types of cases that come across your plate and looking at the future of how these roles need to evolve as technology improves as well.
2: Hmm, I see a pitch for a new cold case show.
3: (laughs) It's definitely a different look into the world that you might see on TV. And a warning for our listeners, we do talk about a few murders and suicides from the past. So if that's not your cup of tea, you are forewarned. With that, let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Ken Holmes. Ken Holmes, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
1: Thank you very much.
3: I wanted to start with what A coroner actually does because it seems like it's many different roles mashed together into one and what I might see on TV is probably not reality so uh, let's start there what does a coroner actually have to take care of
1: well if you go just to the constitution for the state of California the coroner's responsibility is to establish cause of death and manner of death and manner of death is Accident, natural, suicide, homicide, or could not be determined. Those are the only five choices we get. If you read further down the page, the coroner's responsibility is to establish the identity of any unknown person who's found deceased in that jurisdiction. And once the identity is established, then to locate and notify next of kin. If you read further down the page, the coroner's responsibility is to safeguard any and all property that belongs to that decedent until it can be turned over to whomever should either be in the inheritance line or attorneys or you know whatever whatever the case may be. So all of those things are part of the role. Um, the latter obviously playing a smaller part because in probably 98% of most coroner's offices, there's no question about identification beyond maybe one or two days. And then after that, um, you know, we can turn over property to family. Uh, we we have in the past on occasion had to uh, safeguard businesses and uh, airplanes and boats and cars and trains and et cetera. But that's very, very infrequent. But it sounds
3: like it's this mix of A scientific office, because you have a lot of work in sort of establishing cause of death that probably revolves around scientific practices. It's a law enforcement role in some way. There's investigation that has to be done. But I guess what I was surprised with was how much contact you have with the the families, the, the next of kin, and how you have to play a role of a counselor in a lot of cases. Can you talk about that a little bit about what it was like to train for these roles? Did you get, you know, specific training for all of these different things
1: or, uh, and how does that look? Well, first of all, the, the counselor role is, is not spelled out in any of the statutes. The counselor role really comes from the empathy of the people doing the work, um, and, or lack of it in some cases, the, um, The training for me, I started in the mortuary business, and I had a natural empathy for people, which served me very well, not only in that role, but once I got into the coroner's line, which is really the only reason I went into the mortuary business was to eventually end up in the the coroner's field. It was the most direct um, educational path to get there all corners are law enforcement and we're all required to attend the same police academy as any uniformed officer. Um, you know, we have all the established powers of arrest and all that sort of thing, but with very few exceptions have never, ever had to exercise any of that part of the role. So I, I guess the empathy part of it, it's either there or it's not. And it, evolves and it develops over time. When I first started, it was tough on me, but as I got more experience, then it was easier for me to um, almost predict what I was going to be dealing with and therefore be a little bit more emotionally ready to manage it myself so that I could help the families manage the things that they were facing for the first time.
3: And one more twist on this that I didn't e- even sort of think about is that in a lot of cases, coroners are elected positions.
1: Yes. Throughout the United States, there are two ways for someone to become the the um, head person, the sitting coroner, if you will. And in California, it, that's either elected or appointed by the Board of Supervisors. And in those three instances in this state, that is a medical examiner position they do exactly the same thing except the the medical examiner is not autonomous the medical examiner serves at the pleasure of and is thereby subject to more than a little pressure politically as well as otherwise from around the the uh, county or the state or whatever happens to be but throughout the united states there's an awful lot of small states now that have a medical examiner at the state level rather than from county to county simply because logistically it's a lot easier to manage
3: so it sounds like there is it it, there isn't a consistent policy across this country that certain states do it in certain ways and a lot of times this is driven by practicality and, and i assume when you say practicality that means there there's money and staffing involved as well is that a problem for the field
1: that there isn't consistency it's very much a problem. There's uh, uh, no consistency even within the state of California, as far as the investigative forms, the report forms. Uh, The only consistent thing in coroner's office is a state issued death certificate. But everything that the coroner generates leading up to that is uh, the purview of that particular department. And they're all dissimilar um, you can glean the same amount of information, but you can't let, glance at the county next to mine and pick out the same information on the same part of the same page. It's terrible. And throughout the United States, it's only magnified times 50. I wanted to
3: dive into uh, some of the cases that uh, that you worked on throughout uh, decades, a long career in, in Marin. But first, before I dive into some of the specifics, let's talk about the the ratio of suicides to homicides, because I think that was another thing that surprised me from the book, was how many cases you deal with that are suicides.
1: Well, first of all, let me preface that whole conversation with saying that Marin County is a very small population, and so our statistics are... Not the same as a really large jurisdiction, say Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, San Francisco, or Alameda County, be- simply because then, you know, the death rate is going to be smaller all the way across the board. In some of the larger metropolitan areas, there's a higher instance of suicide because there are more people living in the same area and, you know, you you see certainly the, uh, the divergence of economic backgrounds and that sort of thing. Um, But in Marin County, in any given month over my entire career, we would have three to four suicides a month as an average, probably three. For homicides, we would have
3: five or six a year. Which I, I understand what you're saying. The ratio doesn't necessarily hold for different counties. but. I think that puts things in a little bit of perspective is there is a significant number of of suicides and I think there's um there's numbers that indicate there's about 40 suicides nationally and only about 15,000 homicides um or somewhere close to that region so uh, many of what you're dealing with are suicides
1: by far more than homicides yes now there there are a couple of little things quirky things about Marin County that hardly anybody ever thinks about, but it certainly was very obvious for us. San Quentin Prison is located in Marin County. So they have a large population of people who are very unhappy. And so the suicide rate inside of any prison can skew the statistics for the population of that particular area. We also, in Marin County, had the Golden Gate Bridge, which is notorious as the number one spot for suicides and attempted suicides in the United States, if not the Western Hemisphere. And so the suicide rate on the books in Marin County is exceptionally high because of those two outside factors. And if you took away the bridge and the prison, then we would fall right into the national pattern.
3: Got it. Let's dive into some of, um, the, the cases and some of the lessons you, you gleaned from them, which is really the, the thesis of this book. Um, in 1978, there was a, a death uh, from a woman named Carol Filippelli, which was, I think, initially ruled a drug overdose, but your investigation le- leaves some open questions.
1: Well, it was ruled an accident in the beginning because there were drugs found at the residence. And she was a young woman and didn't seem to have any medical history. Um, it did not appear at the scene as though she had, had intended to take her life. And, and there are little things that a coroner or, or police will see that that bring up the idea that someone has done something intentionally or not. And in this particular case, there was nothing to make us think that she had any intention of dying at the time that she did. Unfortunately, back then, and that's a long time ago, we learn a lot of lessons as we go along. Her family was not in California, and they asked that we have her cremated and have the ashes sent to them. So we did that after the autopsy was over, and we had sent off... um, blood specimens to a lab to to analyze the blood and find out what she had in her system so we went ahead with the cremation and then some weeks later when the lab test came back the young lady didn't have any medications in her system and in particular none of the medicines that we found in empty pill bottles in her in her residence so we had been to more than one scene where we found medications in the wastebasket if somebody had run out and or if somebody had intentionally done something to themselves. So on the face of it, we we felt like it was just another overdose. And what we learned is we were fools to allow that cremation until afterwards until after we got the the drug results back because we would have gone on and done a, a, a whole deeper series and there are there's about four levels of toxicology that we do the first one being the standard and I hate that word but it, it looks for the common drugs that are prescribed as well as are sold on the street.
3: As you said, this this case was a long time ago. Has technology dramatically changed how those toxicology screens are done, both in terms of how quickly they're done and, and what sophistication
1: they offer you? There is somewhat more sophistication. Um, the time frame has more to do with the backlog in the particular lab that any coroner is using. And at the time, we were using a lab that we had results in two to three weeks. Typically now in California, it's six weeks or more there are a few small labs that are operated in independently of of any uh, political jurisdiction and they're more expensive but they're faster uh, but they also have quite a backlog because they are smaller and faster
3: it's funny it's not the actual technology that's the hurdle it's the bureaucracy that is the hurdle it's the backlog of cases that still proves to be the the issue that needs navigation more than anything else
1: yes like like you hear in the in the media you know the the rape kits that are sitting on shelves in um, police jurisdictions throughout the United States and the backlog is in some cases more than a year it's the same with toxicology labs although certainly they don't go that long a time without doing it but the better they are the more customers they have and it's just like trying to get into your dentist. If your dentist is the only one in town, you have to set the appointment out further. It kind of illustrates something that I think I gleaned from this book
3: is, is while you know we're a science podcast, we love talking about the science. I I thought much of the tales would have scientific lessons in it. But in reality, many of them just have practical lessons in them. Uh, that all of this is happening in the context of a greater society that moves at its own speed, and that oftentimes it was it was those practical conditions that drove some of these investigations and conditions more than anything else. Drove them
1: and slowed them. <laughs> yes, you know that there is obviously there's much better technology now uh, for doing these lab tests, and a lot of them can be done much quicker than they used to be. And certainly with the advent of things like the laser and now the whole world of DNA, the technology is is spiraling upwards in an ever greater circle, and it's getting better and better and better. But the bottom line is, even the DNA lab, you have to wait because the guy that sent in his specimens yesterday is in line in front of you. And so whether it's bureaucratic or whether it's just practical either way you look at it it takes a while to get these things done be, simply because there's not a lab on every corner
3: uh, i want to talk about the case of sammy marshall which i believe happened in june of 97 he was a death row inmate yes. uh, can you describe a little bit of the conditions around his his death
1: sammy was a, a man who had been at the prison for a long long time he was convicted um, when he was pretty young, um, and I don't recall exactly the circumstances of his sentencing, but he had he had been there a long time, and he was not a man of any higher education. I believe he had like seventh grade, perhaps, as, was his highest year of education, um, and he also had some emotional issues, and from the accounts that I got after Sammy's death, I I think he probably was of a a fairly low IQ. So it was difficult for him to, to digest all the things that were going on around him all the time. Sammy wanted to be alone. He knew he was in prison. He knew he wasn't getting out. And he just wanted to be left alone. And, you know, every prisoner has their own space and that's called their they call it their house. And they don't want intrusions, but the, the situation in prisons is from time to time, there are intrusions. And for whatever the reasons in this particular case, um, somebody decided that Sammy needed to be moved to an entirely different cell. And in my estimation now, and this is just my opinion, instead of sitting down with him or trying to talk to him, Or have him sit with a chaplain or somebody that he trusted and say, look, Sammy, we need to move you. And I know it's a big deal for you, but we're going to do everything we can to make it as as smooth and easy as possible. Some duty officer walked by and said, Sammy, you're moving in an hour. And he said no. He didn't want to. He was afraid. He liked where he was. And he was I think he was in his late 50s, early 60s. I don't recall. So it was tough on him. And so when they came to tell him to move, he said, no, I'm not coming out. And it escalated very, very rapidly. They have uh, in the California prison system, uh, the correctional officers have a um, what they call a takedown crew of four to six people who jam into a cell when somebody is being unruly. And they just simply overpower someone. And they take them down and handcuff them and then lead them out of the cell or drag them out of the cell, as the case may be. Well, Sammy was a big boy. He was probably 250, 260. He had quite a punch. And he did not have real good health. And he had had some heart issues over time. Whether the correctional officer that day knew that or not is part of the problem. But I don't know the answer because I never really could get it from them. So... They came in and they're carrying pepper spray. Sammy knows that's coming. So he takes the mattress off his bed and holds it up to the bars. So they push the mattress down. He start pepper spraying him. He brings the mattress back up and they take it down and they pepper spray him. And finally, they get the door open and they start their way in and they're pepper spraying him and pepper spraying him and pepper spraying him. And, you know, there are regulations for how many times you can do it and for how long each blast each squirt but uh, those rules were out the window so sammy goes down and one guy bigger than him puts his knee in the middle of his back at his chest level another guy bigger than him puts his knee on the back of sammy's head so he's now face down on the concrete and another person sits on his legs And at that point, there's six correctional officers in the cell and there's one correctional officer outside with a video camera who is recording the entire incident. So Sammy at some point says, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And he couldn't because of his compression against the concrete with an oversized tummy and a bad heart and his lungs were being compressed. And he literally was unable to breathe. And so when he stopped fighting they picked him up and started to take him out and then they noticed oh the reason he stopped fighting is cuz he stopped breathing wow that
3: that's this is tough to hear but it's it's the re- i think it's the reality
1: of of what happens in prison well it, it doesn't happen as often now as it used to but it still does there's a couple of things that have changed around this certain Uh, procedure of putting people on their stomachs and what they call hog tying with hands and feet behind them so that they're raised up and all the pressure is on their diaphragm. Um, Some of that, some of the changes grew out of this case, because when I went back to the prison and said, I want to see the video, the video officer had been transferred to another prison, someplace unknown to me, and the video didn't work that day. Oh, interesting.
3: Like there, it didn't record yeah, properly. It? Was uh, the message yeah, given or, to
1: you? Or, some, or something, yeah. And so then I I held an inquest and I called in a coroner's inquest, which is a legal court proceeding. And I called in each of those correctional officers for an interview ahead of time, just so that they would know what to expect, because it's kind of like a court Case, but it's a little different because the um, the coroner sits as the judge and the jury in making the decisions that come out of a, an inquest, and to the man, every single one of them came in with their with their union attorney, and so I knew I wasn't going to get to the bottom of it. In the end, the coroner's jury, the the uh, uh, inquest jury found that he died at the hands of another, other than by accident. But that doesn't change anything because he was a pauper. He had already been cremated and his ashes were sent back to his family, I believe, in the very deep south, either Mississippi, Alabama, someplace like that. And, you know, the correctional officers, I'm I'm sure, at least some of them, are probably still employed. I would hope that they are not quite as quick to use the same techniques to try and subdue someone when it's six to one in a cell that's only six feet wide and 12 feet deep uh, with a bunk in it. I mean, there is so little space inside of a, of a jail or a prison cell. And and to go six on one and have that outcome is ludicrous. But it still does happen not just in California it it happens across the world. I'm sure so it's been twenty years since that incident,
3: and the last few years have brought more visual evidence of of similar circumstances of of deaths under mysterious circumstances and uh and in a lot of times, there's a significant erosion of trust between law enforcement officials and um victims' families and The general public. What sort of lessons do you glean from this? Because it it, it feels like you were in a system that applied a little bit of pressure um, and your independence in some ways came into question.
1: Well, my independence didn't come into question. My my intentions were called into question by the correctional officers uh, union. Why was I doing that to them? You know, I mean, he was a prisoner And he was arguing with them. Well, that doesn't mean that he's wrong. Um, I challenged them, and ultimately nothing came of it. So they could go right ahead and do it again the next day. But I, I honestly believe I don't think another one has happened at San Quentin in that same circumstance. You know, I think law enforcement has a lot of lessons still to be learned, but they're also learning every day. And just in my work at San Quentin after that and after the inquest, talking with some of the counselors out there, talking to them about who should have gone to that cell first. If you if you have an inmate who, you know, is is um, very afraid of everybody and wants no contact. Just leave me alone. Let me eat. He was fed in his cell for the most part, you know maybe a, a whole different approach would have had a, a, a whole different outcome. So there there are changes and it, it's slow, but you, you know, you're seeing across the country and I'm seeing it too. Uh, there's an awful lot of times when the people with the badges are way out of line. And I don't know whether it's the glory of authority or, well, I think one of the things is when you challenge a male his competitive ego stands up and a guy says, I'm the police. That's why. Well, that's not necessarily the the only answer. If if you're told to do something, you don't have to do it just because the guy's carrying a badge, depending on what it is, of course. And, and so I think law enforcement is learning, but it's a slow process. And, you know, right now, all these different departments that I talk with. They're having a terrible time recruiting people because the the quality of the people that are coming to them as applicants is dismal. And so, you know, they'll they'll test 40 people and 39 of them are rejected before they even start with any of the heavy stuff simply because, you know, there's a different attitude on the street today. I could go on for days. We probably shouldn't. I I can
3: I can tell that this is an issue that that you've you've probably felt for a long yes. time. How do you personally cope with all of this, like being around death so much? Um, it, there was probably you know you probably saw hundreds, if not thousands, of, of dead bodies over your thousands. career and had many difficult conversations. How did you personally manage to cope with all of this?
1: Well, it was. A- a learning process for me too. In the beginning, it was not nearly as easy. Um, But towards the end, it became even more difficult, particularly because I was in one area for a long time and I got to know more and more people. And so quite often, well, not quite often, but on some occasions when I was dealing with a family, it was someone I knew. And, and the person who had died was either a brother, sister, a child or a mom or dad. And so you know, in, in the more advanced years, it was just as tough on me as, as the first day I started, you know, I, I have a very healthy, I believe a very healthy understanding of this thing called death and life and how they interact. And my granddad used to tell me, ain't nobody getting out of here alive. Um, so I'm, I'm not afraid to die. And so I, I don't think that, I had near the trepidation that a lot of people did. The emotional part of it was sincerely was going to talk to families when they didn't know we were coming to their door. That's the toughest job that any coroner, any medical examiner, any police officer, any fireman, any ER physician, um, that's the toughest thing they face is going to somebody unannounced. And having to tell them that their life is going to change forever, even though you don't go into those words, it's it really is tough. And I don't think I ever got over it. I just had to do it. So I did. I do spend a lot of time enjoying my life and enjoying my family's life and making sure that they all know that I care about them.
3: Tell me about the future of this field. Is it evolving in a in a different direction? I mean, you spent forty years working uh, essentially in this area. Uh, do you see big changes on the horizon, or is it largely going to be the status quo?
1: I see the the biggest changes coming in in the technology, and certainly in the um, um, scientific side of it, because there are new things happening all the time. Um, and I said. 15 years ago, that by 2025, there probably won't be very many autopsies being conducted because we can do it all with MRIs, CTs, and that sort of thing. The technology is getting so, so finite that there may not be a reason to actually go into the inside of a person unless there's something that has to be recovered. Somebody swallowed something and it Caught in their throat, or a bullet, let's say, uh, or the tip of a knife, or something like that. That may be the only reason. So the technology, I think, is it's it's evolving so fast. It's it's just wonderful. I love it. I would hope that over time, the national level of coroners and medical examiners can finally pull it together because there has been a lot of effort being done, although it certainly gets sidelined a lot. Uh, A national effort to standardize the the type of investigation and certainly the the product, the reportings, um, the different levels of of things that need to be done and that they're done in the same order. Um, You know, you do a a toxicology test and the first thing is just for regular, quote unquote, prescription drugs. And if there are none found, quite often we would go back and ask for heavy metals, which is arsenic and old lace and mercury and yada, yada, yada. And if that doesn't work, then we go to even deeper into things like lead and mercury, but only if we need to. But there are other jurisdictions that wouldn't even think of doing that. And there are some that test for it all the time which is incredibly expensive if you have somebody that was riding their bicycle and uh, a tree fell on them. There's no, no reason to do a, a 300 or $500 uh, toxological study unless you go just at the first level because you're looking for the medicines that they should have had in them or they, or they took on their own. You know what I mean? So I, I see I hope, I think, that the future of the field would come together and make a, a much more agreeable across the, the scope of the product. And the product is the integrity of the information that the coroner is providing. And the integrity of that is the cause of death is as close to exact as you can possibly be. And that the manner of death is not just a whimsical decision based on one person or a committee of three that sit in the back room and kick these cases around. I think every single one needs to be handled on its own and for its own merits. And, you know, there's been recently, there's been quite a bit in the paper, the sheriff in San Joaquin County uh, has Involved in an imbroglio over there because he was telling the pathologist to change manner of death on cases that were involved with uh, law enforcement. Wow! Oh, yeah. calling the in- independence of the of the findings into question, then right, absolutely, and and he was telling the pathologist, a pathologist, you know, a medical doctor, he's telling him to change his decision based on political stuff rather than on the merits of that individual case. And and that is exactly why the coroner should be elected separate from any other law enforcement agency. That's the most prominent example of why there needs to be total independence. But for the sake of the budget, there's only four or five counties left in this state where the coroner stands alone and is elected all the rest all the rest are sheriff coroner in reading the book um and, and the the
3: subtitle of this book is is lessons from decades of of investigating death w- one of the lessons i walk away with is that not every not every victim gets justice or not every victim gets answers uh to the questions that are left behind uh, and sometimes those are are scientific or investigative in nature. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's just practical. Uh, I'm curious, what le- what is the biggest lesson that you're left with after 40 years in the field?
1: Uh, I don't know that I could come up with a single one. <laughs> there there were a lot of lessons all along. And the Carol Filippelli case was one of the early ones. You know, don't make any assumptions based on what's normal or what you expected because you saw once before or twice before. Those kinds of lessons are still going on with everybody involved in the entire field because it takes years to really be honestly comfortable enough in your job to do it right. Um, I didn't know that for the first five or seven years. (laughs) <laughs> but after five or seven years, I realized those first five or seven, I was I was off base a whole lot of time, like everybody else in the field, you know. Um, the The lessons in the long run are to, one to listen to your gut. Um, if if it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Um, on the other hand, you have to temper that with you can't find a boogeyman in every closet. Uh, a tendency in our field for, for people that are new is to overthink uh, and want to go deeper into cases um, because they don't want to miss anything. And in reality, you find over time that the hair stands up on the back of your neck at the right times. Very seldom does a case get completely twisted around. But on the other hand, I know from time to time we missed things, including probably more than one or two that were murders, and we just didn't see any of it or we didn't have enough information uh, or facts to be able to go off in that direction. I mean, there are a few that we put to bed knowing that they were homicides, but we still either we knew who it was but couldn't do anything about it or just obviously didn't know who it was.
3: And I, that tracks back to what I said about not everyone gets justice. This isn't a, a TV show. Exactly. Real real life doesn't wrap up that way. No, it does I, just... I want to leave our interview on an optimistic note. I think one of the most beautiful quotes from the book is, quote, the more time you spend around death, the more you appreciate life. And that seems really clear from uh, from your discussion of, of things today. Uh, Ken Holmes, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you.
2: Well, yeah, that was a little bit like uh, listening to a bunch of mini series case histories. Very interesting, and I think the one that uh, to me sort of sticks out is the Sammy Marshall case. You know, this unknown um, reason why a person died in in you know the in the hands of uh, prison guards. You know, presumably. You know, of course, there are there are natural causes uh, that people can die from instantaneously that are difficult to see even on autopsy. Um, but it kind of begs the question of conflict of interest. I mean, here you have the prison guards who are charged to take care of these individuals, and if they do have a hand in in how they die, um, you know, it's in it's in their house, literally, <laughs> right?
3: I guess um, you know, after talking to Ken, and Ken's an understated guy. He's not. He's not your law and order CSI, like, you know, over the top character. But I think the one thing I walked away with is not every victim gets justice. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it is. Yeah. And some of that is part science because evidence gets covered up or evidence gets missed. Um, But I think where the and this is where the Sammy Marshall case is interesting, is really about the independence of the, these type of roles, mm-hmm. um, because oftentimes uh, they're working every day with mm-hmm. law enforcement. Uh, and sometimes they're part of law enforcement departments, especially in smaller counties, you know, oftentimes coroners or sheriffs. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much like independent oversight do they have when you get into areas like this that are conflicts of interest? How much are practical? You know, if you live in a county of, I don't know, you know, tens of thousands of people, it isn't like there's money for these different roles and operations. And while I know the data says that these situations are, are fleeting, they erode the public trust in a huge way.
2: Yeah. And I think for, you know, obviously death and taxes are two things yeah. that are certain. So and, and you know, I had a great conversation with Atul Gawandi on City Arts and Lectures uh, earlier this year where, you know, he made the point that um, death is really the end of the story. And we as human beings are so interested in stories. And if we don't explain the end, if we can't understand the death, some way that just leaves something very unsatisfying about the entire person's life. And there's no ending there. You don't understand the ending. But I actually think it's probably much more common than we think to not really know exactly what the cause of death is. I mean, even if you. You know, look at patients in hospitals. We often think, like, well, they're surrounded by doctors. Surely they know exactly what happened in those last minutes. But actually, the truth is is that they don't. There, there are often times in which people don't know. You know, and you know, I've had a personal experience where you know someone close to me died, and we never found out why because by the time you know we got there, it was like there just wasn't enough information anymore, and there's so many other circumstances that would would muddy the waters. So. And and it and it it's kind of you know talking to you know the funeral home and and sort of the the pathologist and sort of you know going through like what we could do to find out it was like it seemed this was not an uncommon thing, <laughs> you know.
3: No, and I think that was the shattering that watching all those TV shows over the year programmed me to was that mm-hmm. yeah cases get solved and you know can kind of alludes to that he's you know a majority of cases are actually suicides Mm -hmm. so they get solved in a certain kind of sense but uh there are going to be a lot of lot more questions than answers even when we know the cause of death because there's still circumstances and motivation like things that you'll never be able to answer um I am left with a couple of things, though, after this conversation is, you know, Ken argued for an independent coroner's office, and I believe that more than ever. It seems like, especially where it's practical, you know, counties of sufficient size, there needs to be an independent coroner's office that is a firewall, and there's a firewall between that and law enforcement officials, because that seems essential for public trust when it comes to uh, certain cases. And I would think some of that is behind us with certain kind of science and technology, but it's like very clear in a practical terms from what Ken said, it's not.
2: Well, actually, isn't forensic science like often pseudoscience and, and often criticized? You know, there isn't, you know, the, yeah, you, you have one case, right? So you can't do the right controls. It's, you know, in some ways, the, the question is, is this really science or is this investigation, which is different?
3: I don't know, it's a blurry line. And uh, Jeff Sessions, our, our current attorney general, cut programs that would, uh, essentially bolster the science and forensic science and many coroners and uh, crime scene investigators sort of rebelled against those cuts because of how much they saw that as a potential introduction of, of more rigorous systems uh, into the into those fields. But all that being said, like, we also have to deal with the hand that has been dealt. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not in this perfect time um, where we're going to get answers to all of the questions we had, and science is only the slimmest tool that's part of a larger picture. Uh, I guess I'm still floored with this one uh, One idea is that the coroner, besides doing all of this work behind the scenes, is still the one that has to go tell the families uh, yeah. about this. Like, we are putting a lot on, the, on these um, people. Uh, and so what we're gonna get is, we're going to get some science. We're going to get some rigor for sure because these are professionals, but it's not going to be all science.
2: But I do think it's important to, you know to say like, you know, when a clinician, when a a doctor, uh, you know, sees a patient, they're not doing science, they're making decisions based on science, but they are not at that moment practicing science, unless that person is part of a research study, right? So I think that's something that gets lost when we talk about forensic science, people think, well, oh, the crime scene investigation, that's actually science. No, it's using the tools of science to figure out, you know, a data point or two or, you know, to figure out to tell a story. But, you know, the the, the actual investigation itself is not science.
3: Well, we're going to have to leave that to the professionals on TV.
2: <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us with this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Awald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Miller, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show.
3: And a quick note to our patrons on Patreon. They did reverse that policy they instituted last week on uh, a new fee structure. So thanks to all of those patrons that stuck with us through those changes. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian
2: Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontas, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre
3: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.